If you missed the introduction, I'm Scott Dinehart. I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas. I switched out my really good time slot with Daryl Regal so he could catch his plane. So I've got the late slot. And I know it's a little switched up with non-melanoma skin cancer, but that's what we're going to talk about. I do have a couple of conflicts of interest. I am a speaker and consultant for Genentech, and I'll be talking about one of their products at the end of this lecture, but I'm not speaking on their behalf today. Also, I want to discuss some non-FDA approved treatments, and I'll try and let you know when that happens. <clears throat> Again, our topic is non-melanoma skin cancer. And some of this has been covered, but some of it hasn't. We're going to talk about incidence, diagnosis, and treatment. And I also realize that there are some students here, and there's people that are very experienced with non-melanoma skin cancer, and those of you that aren't. So we'll try and cover a little bit of everything. Start with incidence. I think it's important for you to know that there is an epidemic of non-melanoma skin cancer. Obviously, you know it's very common. You see it every day, every day in your clinic. If you look at the statistics, and some of these were, were uh, reviewed earlier, we're going to see 3.5 million new cases of non-melanoma skin cancer. Also, uh, one in five Americans develops skin cancer at some time during their lives. Uh, I don't want to diminish other cancers, breast cancer, prostate cancer. Uh, those are very important. It's just that skin cancer is much more common than all of those combined, and that's what this, this pie chart shows. You know that it's increasing at a very rapid rate at a time when other cancers, and again, I don't want to diminish those, but many of them are staying flat or we're actually seeing a decrease in those kind of, uh, in other cancers. Whereas with skin cancer, we're seeing this rapid increase, uh, and Daryl alluded to it with melanoma also. It's doubled in the last 17 years. Okay, why is this happening? Well, we know that the number one cause of, of non-melanoma skin cancer is ultraviolet radiation. And people are basically getting more recreational time. They're spending more time in the sun. They're going to the lake. They're going to the beach. They take off in the wintertime. They fly to areas where they can get sunlight. It's really kind of a status symbol. That's, there's really no secret why we're getting more skin cancer. In, the, in past years, people valued light porcelain-like skin. Nowadays, uh, tans are valued because it's a sign that you can have a lot of free time and recreational time. And of course, we're paying people to give us skin cancer. Uh, I tell people, I've heard all these Arkansas jokes this week. Uh, I am from Arkansas. We do have, it's a very rural state. We have a lot of small towns. Not every small town in Arkansas has a family doctor, but they all have a tanning bed. And then the other thing you hear about is that is Starbucks is everywhere. I noticed it's downstairs. There's a couple on the streets outside. It turns out that this study at least showed that there were more tanning salons than Starbucks and McDonald's combined. That gives you an idea of how many tanning beds there are. Okay, let's move on to diagnosis. And we're going to start with basal cell carcinoma because it's the most common. It's the one that you see most often. And uh, I do want to mention that it does metastasize, but it's so rare that you may have to practice a lifetime to see it. I've only seen two cases of metastasis in 25 years. People that do what I do, mostly you're going to see two or three cases. You may never see it, but it's not that it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen very often. But this is the typical basal cell carcinoma. It's kind of pearly and shiny, and I tell patients it's pearly and shiny like your mom's pearls. Uh, it has that central ulceration or kind of the rodent ulcer appearance. Sometimes you see the telangiectasias. It's often in patients who have had sun exposure. And we call it basal cell carcinoma because under the microscope, it looks like the basal cell layer of the skin. And again, Dr. High's pictures are much more pretty than mine, 
But uh, you can see that these are the big clumps of blueberries, and you can see the, derm the uh, retraction from each of the that's present. You can also see kind of the picket fence appearance where the basal cells line up at the edges here. This is kind of basal cell skin cancer. Okay, again, another classic appearance. You can see this in the setting. This patient's had a lot of sun damage. They have the alteration of pigmentation. They've got the telangiectasias. Uh, they've got that central Dell appearance to it, and then it's pearly and shiny. Um, this is kind of classic basal cell carcinoma. But as most of you know, there are some variants. They're not all classic, or it'd be a lot easier. Uh, sometimes we see superficial basal cell carcinomas. They can be mistaken for eczema uh, or even psoriasis. Uh, this is what they look like, just little reddish patches. Sometimes when patients will dry themselves off in the shower, they'll get some bleeding points. Uh, often on the trunk and extremities, superficial basal cell carcinoma. Again, one of the tip-offs, again, is that they're a little shiny, and you can sometimes see a little erosion to them. And again, under the microscope, because you see a more superficial appearance under the microscope, you see that they're more superficial. They just kind of hug that, that epidermis. Let's see, you still see the, the basaloid appearance of the cells and the picket fence appearance, but it's just along this epidermis. Okay, another variant is the pigmented variety. So you can get pigmented basal cell. You might think it's a nevus, you might think it's a melanoma. I think there's a couple of tip-offs here. One is it occurs in darker skin patients a lot of times. So you might see this in type four skin. The other tip-off, as you can see, is that it's still kind of pearly or shiny. So if you see something that's pearly or shiny that looks like a mole, it could be a basal cell carcinoma that's pigmented. Okay, and the morpheiform variants, uh, these are particularly difficult to treat, and we'll see that with the histology. They look like morphia or localized scleroderma. You see this whitish patch. It's very ill-defined. These are difficult to treat. They often recur. Kind of the morpheiform variant of basal cell carcinoma. And again, if you look under the microscope, these are often one to two cell layer intertwining cells within the collagen. You can see that you're probably not going to remove that by scraping it off. You have to cut it out or do something more aggressive to it because they're just more difficult to treat. Okay, sometimes basal cell skin cancers, they're very small, and you pick them up very early. This one, again, has that telangiectasia and a little bit of the pearliness. Um, on the other hand, because they don't metastasize and people tend to ignore them because they think they're cancer, they can reach very large sizes. And this is probably the largest one that I've ever seen, uh, a patient that neglected this for a long time. They finally came in because of pain in their back. It had eroded into their spinal column. Um, and people always ask me, show me the, show me the preoperative view of this. Obviously, this is after the surgery. This is actually before the surgery. So this was the preoperative appearance. I tried to put a few things in for you guys. Some of you are very familiar. I know Steve is, sees skin cancer all the time. Uh, maybe something he put back, take back to his clinic. But I, I wrote this up a few years ago about the red dot basal cell. It's one of the manifestations that I see of an early basal cell skin cancer. And sometimes you only see a red dot. So a patient might come in. This patient actually came in for a skin cancer on the other side of their nose. I was doing that, and I noticed this little red dot, and then I stretched the skin, and you could see that this was probably a skin cancer. So you just see that little red dot, but then it ends up being a skin cancer. And these aren't that uncommon. I see them every two or three weeks. You can see here the red dot, and you can see if you stretch it a little bit, you can see a little bit more. They're not always bigger than you think they are. Sometimes they're the same size. 
And yes, occasionally you're gonna have an actinic keratosis that's scratched or something else that's scratched. But I think when you see this red dot, it should at least, you should start looking at it a little bit closer and your, 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 maybe your uh, idea of doing a biopsy becomes a little bit more common. Again, another red dot, and you can see, turns out to be a skin cancer. And then I have a few more of these. The patient came in for this lesion and this lesion, but there's a little red dot there. Turns out that's another skin cancer. And so when you back off and you see patients, you look at them from a distance, you'll identify these little red dots pretty easily. Then you just move in on them, stretch the skin, and many times you will see that little pearly, shiny rim of tissue around it. So the red dot basal cells may be something you can think about. We'll move on to squamous cell skin cancer. Squamous cell skin cancer, we talked about basal cell not metastasizing very often. It's very rare and unusual. Squamous cell carcinoma can metastasize. In my clinic, I lose two or three, four patients a year to squamous cell carcinoma. It's not that unusual. In fact, if you look at heart transplant patients, it's like the number one cause of death after they live five years. Uh, so it's a serious problem for them. What does the classic squamous cell look like? I think everyone knows it's the opaque nodule with ulceration. Here shown in the preauricular region. Again, another nodule with central ulceration. And under the microscope, they look like the squamous cell layer of the skin, except that that layer of the skin isn't in the epidermis, it's down deeper in the dermis. And we generally classify them as poorly differentiated, well differentiated, moderately differentiated. This, again, is more of a well-differentiated tumor because you see those keratin pearls. Uh, they would be there in a well-differentiated tumor. Just a closer view. And then the poorly differentiated tumor, again, you see the atypia, the cells that are just not quite right, the larger sizes. In fact, you may need some immunostains to make sure this was a squamous cell carcinoma. It's so poorly differentiated. And then we have other variants like acantholytic squamous cell. These are the cells that, that just kind of float off in the air here. You can imagine them just floating into a blood vessel and metastasizing. Acantholytic squamous cells are a more aggressive variant, uh, and that's what they look like under the microscope. Okay, back to just the, the classic appearance of squamous cell carcinoma, this opaque nodule starting to ulcerate. Again, you see a few more of these. You, these patients come in, and I'm sure many of you at this point are thinking, hey, this is a transplant patient. Yes, this patient's immunocompromised. These patients can make hundreds of squamous cell carcinomas, and oftentimes they do. So when you see this kind of picture, you're thinking, wow, not only are these a lot of cancers, but there's probably something wrong with this person's immune system. Okay, another variant is keratoacanthoma. I know many of you are familiar with this. These come up very rapidly. They alarm patients. Patients come in, they're very concerned about these. Hey, this came up over the last week. Uh, it's growing very fast. Can you get this off? These are very easy to treat. Generally, they aren't that aggressive. You can scrape them off. You can cut them out. You can do almost anything to them. Many times, they aren't that aggressive. But patients are very frightened about them because they come up very quickly. Melanoma, the patients that are on Zelbaraf or take medications sometimes make multiple squamous cell carcinomas and they are kind of of the K variety if you see those patients. And again, under the microscope, this is a very kind of bland process, not a lot of atypia, and just what you see clinically is what you see under the microscope. Dr. High kind of mentioned verrucous carcinoma, and I was gonna tell him he kind of treaded on my space a little bit. 
because um, he was doing unusual tumors. But this is where we have a little crossover. But I don't think it hurts you to see too many of these. They are a little bit unusual, and they are often misdiagnosed as warts for years. The tip-off generally is when you start to see destruction or that wart just doesn't respond. It's okay to biopsy a wart and have it come back wart. But also, he will, he will tell you that it's very difficult to get a dermatopathologist to lock in on these. Um, I'll show you a patient later where I actually had to call my dermatopathologist to the OR because we were getting ready to cut off part of a woman's foot, and the pathologist would not call it cancer, so we had to, to enlist the help of the dermatopathologist because it's that difficult a diagnosis to make. But when you start seeing this destruction, that's one of your clues that it's not just a wart. It is a low-grade squamous cell. It does occur in certain places. It is HPV-induced. Uh, Radiation, he didn't mention, is contraindicated. I did have a case as a fellow once where they decided to go against the contraindication. These lesions almost never metastasized. That lesion metastasized after they treated it with radiation. So I have never irradiated one since. Uh, radiation is contraindicated. This is where you need that great communication between your dermatopathologist and the clinician. And again, this is the pathology. It's more of a bulldozing-like tumor, not a lot of atypia. You'll have to, you'll have to really uh, send a picture or really push your dermatopathologist to make this diagnosis. Many times when I call them, I just say, this is a verrucous carcinoma. Now, you can call it whatever you want, but that's what it is, and then they usually call it that. Uh, squamous cell carcinoma, again, does metastasize. This is a patient who had a tumor here. I have a parotid metastasis. This is a patient who had a tumor up here and developed a, a neck metastasis. It can happen. You'll probably see it sometime in your careers. Okay, and I think Daryl showed this same pie graph. We have the same slides. We just mix them up different ways. <clears throat> but he talked about how melanoma is the big killer, that three-fourths of skin cancer deaths are due to melanoma. Well, what I would argue is there are a few Merkel cells that get people, but that other one-fourth are largely squamous cell carcinomas. So about a, a fourth of, of skin cancer deaths are probably squamous cell carcinoma. And then it doesn't have to kill you just by metastasizing. This is a patient who just had direct invasion into the brain. These can be very destructive, and you can lose your life that way. Now, I think that up to this point, everybody feels pretty comfortable. Yeah, I know all this stuff. I like to put it into a little bit of a different context because you're not really just seeing these patients as they come in. Okay, here's basal cell, here's squamous cell. It's like you're at the dermatology clinic and all kinds of things can come in and you kind of have to sort them out. And in a smaller group, I'd, I'd kind of go through this a little more, but I may just run through this, but it's kind of one of those you make the call because this is what you have to do every day. Uh, this is a patient who, who uh, had been treated for psoriasis for many years and it did kind of come and go, but you know, Skin cancer can also come and go. When you start talking to the patients, they'll tell you, yeah, it almost cleared up, so I canceled my appointment, then I decided to come in, then I decided not to, and now I'm like this. This turns out to be basal cell carcinoma. This is a younger patient, and if you look at younger patients, basal cell carcinoma, 2% of patients will be under the age of 30. It's not that uncommon. Now, squamous cell carcinoma, for some reason, if you see a squamous cell carcinoma under 40, you almost have to question it. I've seen maybe five or 10 in my life, but you have to get so much sunlight evidently, it's just hard to make a squamous cell until you're 40. But basal cells, it's not that uncommon under 30, uh, even if you don't have a genetic syndrome or basal cell nevus syndrome. This patient has what most people would say is herpes simplex. This would come and go, and this turned out to be basal cell carcinoma. Okay, this, 
looks like psoriasis. And guess what it is, psoriasis? I was just checking with you guys. <laughs> but sometimes squamous cell carcinoma can look like psoriasis. And squamous cell carcinoma in situ or Bowen's disease can look like psoriasis or eczema. So it's not that unusual to see that. This is a patient with a draining sinus that has this spot. You biopsy it, it doesn't show anything. I mean, I know everyone knows that this is a dental sinus. It's not a skin cancer. You see these occasionally, and they will fool you the first time, but once you see them the first time, you'll remember them. Um, generally, it's caused by an abscessed tooth. It's not painful because it's draining. In my experience, you generally have to pull the tooth to get rid of the abscess. Um, and they kind of characteristically, if it's one of the top teeth, it's up where hers was. If it's lower, it can be down here on the jawline. Uh, generally, you make the diagnosis with an x-ray and you send them to the dentist. Okay, this is a patient, a lot of sunlight. You'd think this might be a skin cancer. It turns out to be a cold sore. But then you have another patient with a lot of sun damage. You get the similar appearance, and it turns out it's squamous cell carcinoma. So it's tough. And then you see these. I know everyone that does a lot of dermatology sees these a lot. Generally, these are a little tender. That tips you off because most skin cancer is not going to be tender until you get to late stages. Yeah, when it invades the bone or it invades periosteum or their ear is eaten off, it's very tender because of the cartilage. But most skin cancers don't hurt at all. They're, not, they, they're painless, and that's why patients don't come in. When you have chondrodermatitis like this, where you have these little nodules on the ear uh, that are due to just sun damage and inflammation of the perichondrium, that's not skin cancer, but we see it a lot. It still doesn't mean you can't biopsy it. Sometimes biopsying it is the treatment. And in my neck of the woods, my part of the country, blastomycosis is common. I have one or two patients sent every year that are said to have a squamous cell carcinoma. It turns out this patient had blastomycosis. You treat it with itraconazole, it goes away. So again, sometimes skin cancer is easy, but then sometimes when you put it in the whole context of things, it can be a little bit more difficult. You see onychomycosis all the time, fungal infections. You have talks on them all the time. It's easy to figure that out. But then, you know, Dr. High kind of mentioned the uh, periangle squamous cell carcinoma. When you start to see that destruction, or gee, they're just not getting better, it's reasonable to do a biopsy. And uh, these are oftentimes, at least the ones that are referred to me, are oftentimes picked up late uh, just because of the nature of things. People don't suspect it. Whenever someone picks it up early, I always tell the patient, I congratulate their dermatologist. These are difficult. You're not expected to pick these up early. If you can do that, you're an exceptional dermatologist or provider. Okay, and again, these, these lesions that look like eczema or psoriasis can be squamous cell carcinoma in situ or Bowen's disease. Not that uncommon. And then we talked about Verruca's carcinoma. Um, again, when warts don't get better, when you have the wart from hell, it's not a bad idea to biopsy it. And sometimes you have to do the extensive biopsy, or you have to have that index of suspicion, or get a consultation or a second opinion. This lady's lesion was so tender, I knew it was Verruca's carcinoma before we went to the OR, but I couldn't convince the pathologist to call it cancer. But it was like Dr. High said, when we got in there, there was no saving part of her foot. So we kind of knew what we had to do, but we kind of felt bad amp doing an amputation without uh, a diagnosis of cancer, so I had to call my dermatopathologist. Fortunately, he came down, looked at the frozen section, and agreed with me that it was cancer. 
I saw your, I went to your talk yesterday a little bit on the lupus where you have subacute lupus. This could certainly be subacute lupus, but it's really superficial basal cell skin cancer. So what I'm getting at is clinically, you can only be so good. You can have an index of suspicion, but eventually you're gonna to need to do that biopsy. And again, most cancers don't hurt. Your threshold for biopsy is less in those patients who, hey, they've had melanoma, they've had skin cancer, they look like they've been in a tanning bed for their whole life. Yeah, those people are gonna get biopsies a little bit quicker. But if you have that suspicion, you're gonna pick up those lesions. Again, people ask me, when do you biopsy? Well, when things crust, bleed, increase in size, they erode, that's when I generally do a biopsy. If something's been present for three to six weeks and won't heal, I don't mind biopsying it. If uh, it does have a translucent, pearly appearance, then you know, I'm gonna be more likely to biopsy it. And then there's this question about what you should do with the biopsy, if you should do a shave biopsy or a punch biopsy. And I think the best thing to do is go back and talk with your dermatologist and see what they prefer. In my clinic, I do 30 shaves to every one punch, maybe 100 shaves to every one punch. But I've been doing it that way for years. There's new literature that says, well, maybe it's better to do the punch because you're gonna pick up those tumors that on histology, they look very bland at the top, but they're very aggressive at the bottom. And I don't know, you know how much I believe in that or how much that's important to me. I tend to can take care of most everything anyway, so whatever, just bring it on. But I think there is this tendency for them to say, well, you really need to do a punch. I think you go back and you talk to your provider I'm gonna keep doing shaves and I'll be happy to be your expert witness. Uh, but if you feel like you wanna do a punch, that's fine. And I don't know if Dr. High is still here, but I wanted to point out this is, this is the standard one and a half millimeter punch that he likes. Uh, he likes the very small ones, so he gets almost no tissue, so it's hard for him to make a diagnosis. He needs challenges. Uh, but this is just, yeah, the punch technique. And you can see this patient's obviously had a lot of sunlight. You could biopsy anything and it's gonna be cancer on this fellow. He looks like someone's taking a cancer stick and beating him with it. Okay, treatment, we'll move on to treatment. I like to divide this into surgical treatment and medical treatment. Many of you are thinking, gosh, what kind of medical treatment? What do we do? Actually, Daryl covered a lot of this for me because he talked a lot about AKs and we use some of the same things. But we'll talk about surgical first and people say, how do you, how do you select treatment? And I think when I think about it in my mind, I think the way we do it is we look at the type of tumor and, and that's where uh, the pathology, the size, you know, is it basal cell, squamous cell? How big is it? I think that's where you can become better is if you learn the histology. If you go in and you look at the histology and it's a very bland, banal histology, you know you can do certain things to it and it'll be fine. If you've got the morpheiform histology, then you better get out the big guns right away. Or if you've got that aggressive infiltrative lesion, it's, it's, you know you're gonna have to be a little more serious with it. So that's where I'd say that, that I think the pathology part of this conference is really gonna help you. I, tend to, I do tend to look at cost of treatment. I think that any discussion on treatment, we have to look at cost nowadays, but I don't necessarily pick the cheapest. I just pick the cheapest that I think is gonna be the best for the patient. And then sometimes certain people, their expertise is in a certain way. They just happen to be really good with EDNCs or uh, whatever you call them, CNDs, scraping and burning. That's just kind of their thing. They've done it for years. They know how to do it. They get good results with it. And that's, they maybe tackle some tumors that you wouldn't tackle. Well, that's great. 
if you're familiar with a certain type of treatment, you get better results, more power to you. So that factors a little bit into how you pick things. The surgical treatments, scraping and burning, I think we'll talk about that, curatage and electrosurgery, surgical excision, cryotherapy. I'll tell you about cryotherapy right now. I think there's about 50 people in the world that do it well. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for you. If someone is very familiar with the treatment and they just love doing it, then, and they get good results, more power to them. But most people aren't, most dermatologists, most dermatology PAs aren't gonna use cryotherapy to treat skin cancer. It's only an exceptional one where they're really familiar with the treatment and they love doing it. They might get good results, but otherwise, not so much. And then most surgery, I'm sure you've had countless lectures on that. We'll go through it briefly. The scraping and burning is just that you, the tumor cells are less coherent, so they scrape off, and then basically you come behind and burn. Now variations to that, some people do it two and three times over again. Some people do it times two. I'm one of those people that I tend to believe, and there's literature to support it, that the curatage is actually what gives the patient the cure, and sometimes the burning gives them more of the scar. So I've tended over the years to be more of a curatage person and less of a burning person. But, uh, and, and it works for me, I'm familiar with that, it works well, but it's something that you might wanna to talk to the dermatologist that you work with and see what their experience has been. I've been to conferences where people tell me exactly the opposite, they say, no, it's the electrosurgery that counts. Well, it seems to work for me, so I do it that way. Um, it's best suited for primary tumors. You're not gonna use this for recurrent tumors most of the time. Generally, people say when that curette drops into the fat, your chances for cure are not quite as good. You probably should go to something else. And uh, if you look at the cost studies, they say this is the most effective way to treat skin cancer, so probably we should encourage it. Sometimes patients don't like it because it leaves a scar that you know, is whitish or, or doesn't look so good. Uh, this is, again, the curette that you scrape off the tumor with, then you come back with the electrosurgery, and you can do this over and over if you want, or you can just do it one time, just depending on how aggressive you are, and then they get a good result out of it. Now, many people might do something different for that type of lesion, but if I knew that was a nodular basal cell and and uh, that's what that patient wanted. That's what we would do. Okay, excision. We talked a little bit about this earlier. Uh, with one of the problems with scraping and burning is there's no endpoint. Most of the studies have shown that you probably do leave tumor behind, but the body kind of takes care of that tumor as it heals. The inflammation kind of kills off the tumor. Uh, it turns out with excision, at least you have an endpoint. You know that you can check a margin and you can see if it's positive or negative. That helps. And then you can just close these wounds however you want. So if you have a patient and they have a tumor like this, you can just cut it out and you can sew it up and that works fairly well. A tumor here, you're probably maybe not gonna scrape and burn this, but maybe you would. Uh, but it's really easy to have so much skin, you can just cut it out and sew it together. Okay, people ask about surgical margins when you're doing excisions. Um, Generally, the studies show that if you have a basal cell carcinoma, you need a four millimeter margin to get 95% of tumors, uh, primary tumors. If you have a squamous cell, you need six millimeters to get 95% of them. So if you're just picking a margin, that's what it's gonna be. Cryosurgery, we talked about. I think a few people do it well, but there's probably more people that don't do it so well. And not a lot of dermatologists, I think, do this for skin cancer. Okay, Mohs surgery, I think it was mentioned earlier. Fred Mose, 
developed the technique in the 1930s. It's become incredibly popular over the last few years. I think most everybody's familiar with it. You've probably had many lectures over it. It is predicated on, on looking at that entire border, whereas maybe excision, you just look at 1% of the margins. Now, sometimes people say, well, gosh, why would you ever want to do excision when you could do Mohs surgery? Well, generally, it's, it's probably because some insurance company won't let you do Mohs surgery, and you'd like to cut out the lesion, so you do excision. Um, it does provide very high cure rates for non-melanoma skin cancer, and certainly works well for recurrent tumors. You do need special training to do Mohs surgery. Again, you're going to view 100% of the cut margin. That helps you get very high cure rates. And it's, you know, tumors often have little roots. You're tracking them out. That's why you get the higher cure rates. Morpheiform tumors are optimal for this. They have, uh, oftentimes they have little roots on them, and you can track them out. Another morpheiform tumor, again, you can see the whitish area. It's really hard to figure out where that is. But after you do it a while, you kind of figure that out. Okay, so I think really, if you're going to be successful in treating non-melanoma skin cancer, it's all about selection. Uh, there are certain tumors, and again, I think the pathology is so important that you look at the pathology. Because you get a small tumor that has a nodular pathology, you've got so many more options. You get a tumor that has morphia uh, characteristics. You know what you need to do, and there's no reason to do something else and then have it recur and then go to that treatment. Uh, so it's very, you know, I think that's the whole key for is selection, 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 is that if you can put all that together and select the right treatments. The other thing that makes dermatologists very good is that we're not locked into one thing. We're not just surgeons. We do medical things. We also, you know, in the old days we did radiation. Now we're doing it again. But we do different things for different tumors, and I think that makes us better. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about medical approaches to non-melanoma skin cancer. So we've talked about the surgical part. And some of these it's easier because Daryl's kind of mentioned them. But uh, sometimes patients have surgical risk factors. Even for something that's done in our office, they're just frail people. They're just not healthy. They're not going to be good for what we need to do. Maybe they can withstand us taking the tumor out, but then we've got to reconstruct it. It's a big day for them. Maybe that's why you don't want to do something surgical. Also, some patients have failed certain surgeries over and over, and they're just like, Doc, I don't want to do something surgical. Is there something medical we could do? Sometimes surgical extraction is very difficult, and certainly in a rural state like Arkansas, many of these patients, it's just sometimes it's tough, and sometimes it's hard for them to get to someone who has the expertise that can take these out. Uh, sometimes it's just not available in their area. Also, sometimes just the patient's choice or preference. Uh, you know, they would just prefer not to have surgery. They've had it before. It was a terrible experience for them. They'd like to do something else. And then occasionally there are cosmetic concerns that overweigh everything, where maybe the cure rate isn't quite as high, but the cosmetic concerns are so great that I'll try that first. If it recurs, then I know I can always come back to surgery. Okay, these are, these are the listings. Observation, radiation, topical chemotherapy, again, PDT. And then for some of you, most of this is old hat, but maybe the hedgehog inhibitor is something you haven't heard about. Okay, observation, no treatment. There are patients that I see all the time where I give them the option of no treatment. We don't have to treat this, or maybe we won't treat this. The way I explain it to them, and I don't even know if they understand being 96 is what they usually are, but I tell them after age 85, it's Burger King Day. They can have it their way. 
And I try to listen to them, and many of them are like, yeah, doc, I really don't want to treat this. I'm like, okay, you're, you're 96, it's all right. We don't have to treat it. Uh, many times, this is a lady that's 96 that does come to my clinic, and she has a basal cell carcinoma. It has been cut out twice. It's been irradiated. She's very cosmetically persnickety, even though she's blind. And uh, she just doesn't want to have it treated. I offered, I said, you know, we can, I can cure this in 15 minutes with a rhinectomy. It's very simple. But that's not something she wants. And I'm happy to just watch this. And at 96, I'm thinking time's on my side. So realize that with basal cell carcinomas, you have a lot more leeway because it's probably not going to kill them. And if it's not causing symptoms and they're elderly or they're not good surgical candidates, there, it is reasonable sometimes to just watch and, and wait. Radiation is something that we used to do not so commonly, but it is getting this, there's this big resurgence. Many dermatologists are getting superficial radiation therapy units in their offices. Uh, you are seeing this resurgence. <clears throat> Realize that for radiation, there are some advantages. The first thing I tell people is it's not surgery. That's a big advantage to a lot of patients. Uh, side effects are usually minimal. Uh, generally, you get good cosmetic results with radiation. Uh, the cure rates are decent if you pick the right tumors. Again, it's all about selecting the patients. And for some patients, you're not really looking for a cure. Yeah, they're not in good health. They've had a lot of heart problems. They had a stroke last week or whatever it is. And it is bothering them a little bit, but can we just palliate them for a few years? Radiation might be just right up their alley. There are some disadvantages. They spoke earlier about not radiating people at 50 years of age. My cutoff's about 60. Depends on their health. You know, some 60-year-olds are like 30-year-olds. Some 60-year-olds are like 90-year-olds. It's all very different at 60 or 70. But generally 60, I try not to irradiate before 60 because people can live that 20 or 30 years and have those long-term radiation problems. So 60 is kind of my cutoff. You don't have that margin control. We talked about it's kind of a blind procedure. This is also a blind procedure. It usually takes four to six weeks, a lot of visits. Patients don't like that. If the radiation facility is not close to them, they really don't like that. But if it's in your office, they're a little bit better with that. Also, you can't do radiation more than once. You can only do it once generally, so you have one shot at it. It's not something you can do for radiation recurrences. Uh, basal cell neva syndrome patients, it's contraindicated. If you radiate them, they will make hundreds of basal cells in those radiation sites. So before you radiate a basal cell neva syndrome patient, you know, get a second opinion or get a consultation. Radiation's not cheap. On, you know, mega radiation at the cancer center or something, it can be $25,000 a, a, uh, a lesion. Uh, a, the, the units that go into doctor's offices are more reasonable but certainly uh, it's not maybe one of the cheaper ways to treat skin cancer. And then I tell patients, it is kind of like radiation recurrences are the thing that messes up most surgeons' lives. Those of you that help with most surgeons, you know if you get a radiation recurrence, it's like the cancer from hell. And uh, it burns up the blood supply, you cut into it. They go, gee, that's neat, you can do surgery without it bleeding. And we go, yeah, that's really cool because there's like no blood supply to this tumor. So it's like betting the farm, if you do it, and it doesn't work, then sometimes you have hell to play. Um, this, is a good, this is a patient who's a good candidate for radiation. She has a large tumor. It's not that deep. It's not just totally superficial, but there's some nodularity to it, but it's not outrageous. To get this off surgically, she'd have to have a forehead flap, 
She's not a good surgical candidate for that. She's 87. She's not really in good health. She's struggling a little bit. But if you set the radiation fields right, she could get a great result with this, and she did. <clears throat> Let's move on to topical chemotherapy and Miquimod and 5-FU. Again, this was touched on by Daryl earlier, so I'm going to go fairly quickly. It turns out that both of these, 5-FU and Miquimod, are approved by the FDA for superficial basal cell carcinoma. Um, I think you know how they work, and again, selecting patients for this would be very important, how you select out the patients. Uh, when I think about amiquimod, even though it's a, it's, it's, it is approved for basal cell, I tend to think of it more for basal cell. I tend to think of 5-FU more for squamous cell carcinoma in situ. So that's the way I think about them. Maybe that's not right, but that's the way I use them. Um, you can pick out different studies and get whatever cure rates you want. Again, I'm going to tell you that the way you select patients is probably going to depend on how good a cures you get. Uh, you can get very high cure rates if you just read the studies. So the advantages are you can get a good cure in superficial basal cell skin cancer. Um, again, I don't use it as much for squamous in situ, but you could. The cosmesis is sometimes the overriding factor here. When patients come in and they have a superficial skin cancer that's in a very bad cosmetic area, and generally it's a woman who's of... Uh, maybe they're older, but they still go to the fancy balls and they wear the low-cut dresses and things. This is kind of your optimal patient for this. Uh, also, you can use it for widespread tumors. I have patients that come in that have, you know, 39, 78 superficial skin cancers on their body. You know, scraping them all off is a task, but you can give them the cream and have them work on them one by one, and after a few years they come back and they're done. And then if some of them come back, you can say, gee, we can do something different with those. Uh, widespread tumors, patients with basal cell nevus syndrome, they work well too. I think the shoulders and chest, the place where you're going to get bad scars in patients that are cosmetically oriented, that uh, amiquimod works well for those patients. Okay. So this is actually a family doctor that I saw, and he didn't really want to have surgery for this. He, he, wanted to, he didn't want to take off time from his practice. He, it, fortunately, it was a superficial basal cell. It actually was recurrent. It doesn't meet the FDA requirements for amiquimod. That's never stopped me any time, but I will point that out. But I thought he was good for it. He just wanted to, uh, he wanted to try it, and I said, gee, if it doesn't work, then we'll cut it out and put a graph back there. But he revved this thing up, and he's one of those guys where if you tell him to use it once a day, you know, it's like a little's good, a lot's better. So he, he did do a little bit more than whatever, but it turns out that if you look at the literature, the more intense the reactions, the better the cure rate. So I, I'm in the category where I just like to light these up, and uh, I tend to just uh, get after them, and I don't mind that they get a bad reaction. Generally, it doesn't hurt, and uh, I just try and encourage the patients as they go along. But he got a really good reaction, and he got a good result, and I follow him for, gosh, five, seven, eight, ten years. He still has done well with this. He didn't have to have a big surgery. Another patient, I don't know why I treated this, but I do show it because I had a little complication. It's a patient who had a nodular basal cell, a large lesion, and he was treated. He got a very vigorous reaction, and he ended up getting some hypopigmentation, some uh, lightening of the skin in the area. And it's the, he's actually the only patient I've, I've seen this in. I've actually seen it, I think, in two patients. One was a penile lesion, and I don't think the guy cared that it was white. 
but it was this patient and another one. But in some of the studies, they say this happens up to 15% of the time. I don't know what they're doing differently than what I'm doing, but I don't see this that often, but I will point it out. The disadvantages to amiquamotor, the stuff that you saw, the crusting, the erythema, the scabbing, that bothers patients. It does itch. I've done it to myself, and I can tell you it itches. It doesn't hurt, uh, in, in a, except in a very small number of patients. Maybe 3% of patients complain of pain. If you treat too large an area, they can get flu-like symptoms, so you have to watch that. The patients that, oh, it works well on my arm, so I'll use it all over my body, they come in feeling like they have the flu. That's what's happening. Um, again, scarring to me is unusual. Hypopigmentation is actually somewhat unusual, but the studies say that it occurs more often than what happens with me. I will say it's not the most cost-effective way to treat skin cancer. The drug did go generic, and it promptly went up in price. We don't quite understand that one, but uh, it's the way things work. It does take more time than surgery. Sometimes it's really disheartening. You spend 15, 20 minutes explaining it to one of these old farmers, like, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this, and they just look up at you, can you not just scrape it off, doc? I don't care about a scar. And you go, okay, well, I'm glad I explained all that to you. Um, but that's, that's sometimes what happens. But I do feel like I need to give patients an option. Um, the clearance rates are lower than surgery, but actually I've had very good results, and it's because I think I select my patients well. I follow them. I don't just give them the cream and let them walk out the door. I schedule back appointments, and I watch what happens. I think that's critical. And, you know, it's not compliance anymore. It's adherence. It's like a better name or something. But basically, if you don't have a compliant patient, you're not going to get very far with this. Okay, this is a patient who had a bilobe flap on her nose. She wasn't all fired up about that experience. So when she got another cancer and she thought she could use a miquimod, she did. She got a good reaction, and she ended up getting a very good result. Again, better than you could get with surgery. I think she still has a little area here where I did the biopsy. And this is one where, again, the FDA recommendations are five times a week for six to 12 weeks. I found early on that my patients, like, take the weekend off. They don't quite, my patients are just not that way. It's like do it every day or they can't figure it out. So I tend to have a different regimen. I just do it once a day until severe crusting and oozing occur. And I think it's torture to put these people through, you know, 12 weeks. Sometimes that's torture for people. They're just frying the thing. And then other times, 12 weeks won't even light it up. You have to do something different. And the people, if you did the studies, like I did the original studies, the people who didn't get good results don't get a reaction. So this idea that you can kind of modulate that reaction and get something for free, I'm here to tell you that in my experience that doesn't happen. There is no free lunch with a Mikomod. You just have to fire it up and get it going. So this is a lady who had a basal cell in her nose, mostly superficial. There might have been a little dermal invasion, I'm not sure. But she did not want to have Mohs surgery, and I agreed to do this even though it is not FDA approved. And she was a good girl. She got this fired up, and you can see how she's trying to cover it with makeup. It's not working. But she did get a good result, and I followed her for a long time, and she's done well with this. She avoided a surgery that she didn't want to have. This is my typical patient that has the superficial lesions on the anterior chest that's the socialite that goes to all the functions that, you know, if you put scars on her chest, you're going to ruin your reputation. They're like, what's that? That's the scar that Dr. Dinehart put on my chest. You know, that's not going to be good for your reputation. These are the ones that, that work really well. And you can see that she fired this up to the point where she got ulceration. 
but she still doesn't get scarring. And she has a little erythema, but this is an early picture. So my tips, and I think if you're, again, if you're just dabbling in this or just starting in it or you know everything else about non-melanoma skin cancer, I hope you'll take something away. Uh, one thing is I always give them a one-year, I try to follow them for five years, but that one-year visit's very important to me because in the literature it said that if you're gonna have a failure, it's usually within that first year. Okay, the second thing is that some of these people don't react. They, I'm one of those people, when I use the Miquimod, you can put it on all day, once a day, it doesn't work on me. But when I occluded it with Tegaderm, it took off. And so if you're having a patient that's having trouble reacting, then try occlusion, that works really well. Okay, 5-FU, again, they mentioned that it started in Little Rock, Arkansas with the Janssen's group, and so because of that, we have a lot of people in our area that use it. Um, you can look at the studies, you get good results, especially, they talk about basal cell, but I think squamous cell carcinoma in situ, I have a lot of friends who use this for squamous cell carcinoma in situ, and they get good results. It's a tough treatment except in the wintertime. A patient with squamous in situ might prefer to have this treated with 5-FU than with surgery, but if you did treat it, it is tender, it's painful, it hurts, and if, you, and if you let them go out in the sun while you're doing this, it hurts even more. And I'm thinking like, how did they get this in the first place? Well, they were out in the sun. So if you're telling them not to go in the sun, trust me, they're not gonna do that, they'll be out there. So a lot of these people get treated in the winter time. Daryl also alluded to the fact that it does look like ground hamburger meat when you get a good reaction. And generally what I tell people is use it, you know, three weeks, twice a day or something, and then, and, uh, you know, it will start to hurt. When you can't stand it, then use it one more week. That's generally my line. But uh, it, the more reaction, obviously, the better the result, but it can be somewhat painful. Okay, PDT, not really FDA approved for treating skin cancer, but I mention it because there are so many articles that are written about it. Uh, and Daryl did a good job explaining how ALA is put on, and I know you use this for actinic keratosis, so you're familiar with it. Uh, again, it's, not, it's really approved for AK in this country, but not for skin cancer. You take the PDT stick, you put it on the, the skin cancer, you shine the light on. Some people, for thicker lesions, they will occlude the area, and instead of doing the long uh, duration, they'll put, the, put it under occlusion, and that gives them a better result. But many of my friends do get good results, and particularly for squamous cell carcinoma in situ. Again, not FDA approved, but something that is, is uh, something that dermatologists do do and get good results with. So a patient that has the Bowens may wanna, may wanna do that then rather than you have to cut it out. Okay, the advantages are that it, it, it is good for low-risk lesions. Um, if you have multiple lesions, it's good. You get good cosmetic results, that's good. Basal cell neva syndrome patients, I have used it in them, and sometimes you, you, if you can get them to come in, you can get good results. Disadvantages, you can't use it for invasive tumors. Most of the tumors you can treat with this, you can treat some other way. You do need specific equipment, and you get those side effects like photosensitivity, facial edema, and burning pain. Again, to do this in the summertime and then tell patients, well, don't go play golf, don't go outside. Now, I know that's how you got this problem, but you're probably not doing that anymore, right? Generally, as you guys know, if you're in Florida or somewhere, they're gonna go out and play golf, they're gonna do things. Uh, and then they call your office. 
So if up to this point you know everything, hopefully, uh, I, I think this has been out for a while. You've probably heard about the hedgehog pathway inhibitor. Uh, it is something that's a little bit new to dermatology, but I think it's getting to be more well known. I'll talk briefly about it because it's another non-surgical way that you could treat basal cell carcinoma. It is FDA approved for locally advanced and metastatic basal cell carcinoma in adults. And so metastatic patients, we don't see very many of those, but anybody that has metastatic basal cells is probably going to get vismotigib. They're probably going to get the hedgehog inhibitor. Um, it does come in an oral dose of 150 milligrams, and yes, dermatologists and dermatology PAs are giving it. It's not something you have to send someone to the oncologist to get. In fact, it's probably better if you do it yourself. The side effects we're going to talk about aren't that, it's not like they're going to get septic and you're going to have to admit them to the hospital. But there are some side effects. But I'd, I'd really liken it more to Accutane. If you do Accutane, you might do the hedgehog inhibitor. If you send all your Accutane patients out, maybe you'll send the hedgehog inhibitor out. OK, the hedgehog pathway, I don't want to beat you up at this time of day with the basic science of it. But I think that what you need to know about it is it's, it's a pathway that the basal cell carcinoma uses to grow and divide. So if you inhibit this pathway, you're going to shut down the ability of that basal cell to grow and divide. That's what it's all about. And about 90% of basal cells, both sporadic type and in basal cell nevus syndrome, have this pathway or utilize this pathway. So you don't have to do any testing to see if they have it. We use it four different ways. There's an FDA-approved way always. Then there's always some non-FDA-approved ways that I'll mention are not FDA-approved. But obviously, we're thinking about them. Let's start with the one that's approved real briefly. Yeah, so when you have a locally advanced tumor that perhaps has been operated on before, you don't have that many options, or it's going to be a big surgery for someone, you can start them on this oral medication. And sometimes you get a home run. Probably 20 25% of the time, you get a home run. You biopsy this. There's no cancer left. Uh, this takes four to six months, though. They have to be on the pill. They have to endure the side effects that we'll talk about. But this can be a nice thing for patients to be able to do this with a pill rather than with surgery. Again, sometimes it's just patients who have a lot of tumors. This is a basal cell nevus syndrome patient. They have some bad tumors, but they just have so many. You can put them on the hedgehog inhibitor, shrinks them down. Many times they go away. That's always good. Again, just pictures that show what happens. Now, sometimes you're not lucky. You don't hit home runs every time, maybe only 25% of the time. But a lot of the time, it shrinks. And we talked about the DFSP, where you put them on the, the uh, medicine that shrinks them, then you cut them out. This is the same idea. You put them on this medicine. Maybe if they stay on the medicine, they get a complete cure. But sometimes patients can't stay on that long. Sometimes it, it'll shrink by half, and you'll go, gee, let's cut it out. Um, but patients, sometimes they will shrink, but they don't go away, but you can cut them out. Same thing here. I don't know. Is it easier to operate on this or this? Probably this. Um, but if there's, this is, there's basal cell left here, but it's still going to be maybe a better surgery than this. So that's the other way that we use it. And so when I see patients like this, um, and I was always impressed with this guy because he's so meticulous. You know, his, his beard and stuff, his mustache, they're so well trimmed. And he's got this thing hanging over his eye. Came in because he finally couldn't see out of that eye. He thought he better get it checked. Uh, but when I see patients like this, I'm thinking, you know, I could just go in there and create a whole big mess, or maybe I could shrink this thing down, and I don't have to take out his eye, or I don't have to do something crazy. And so that's where I, this 
that's where this tool kind of fits into the box a little bit, that uh, you can do this before you do that. Yeah, intermittent use. It's really hard to stay on this medicine. We'll talk about the side effects in a minute. It's hard to stay on it forever, but you can use it intermittently. And most of these patients have basal cell neva syndrome. If you have these patients, they're very non-adherent, very non-compliant, they're difficult to work with, but this drug will change their lives because it stops them from making, instead of six basal cells every six weeks, they might make six basal cell skin cancers a year. And uh, the problem is they still have to take it orally and they're not very good at taking anything or doing anything. And a lot of their skin after a while, it does look kind of like the surface of the moon because you've been chipping these things off so much. Another patient with basal cell neva syndrome, this drug will change their lives. Unfortunately, basal cell neva syndrome is not an indication for this drug. So you really have to have the locally advanced or metastatic. Now they do give you considerable leeway as to what locally advanced is. Okay, and jaw cysts, I just wanna remind you, basal cell, patient, basal cell neva syndrome patients, they do have jaw cysts. They're a real headache to get rid of. The oral surgeons have to see them. It turns out that this drug, again, not FDA approved for this, but the medical literature shows that if you give them this drug, the jaw cysts will shrink as well as the skin cancers. Okay, the bad part is that the cure rate's lower than surgery, but a lot of these patients aren't surgical candidates anyway, or they have trouble with surgery. Uh, the adverse events are a problem. Again, muscle cramps, hair loss after about three or four months. The hair does come back, but for female patients, you know, when you tell them they're gonna lose their hair after three or four months, they're not crazy about that. It does induce taste abnormalities, keeps people from eating, they tend to lose weight. Um, a lot of my patients over a six month, eight month period of time, they'll lose 15 pounds. Now most people in Arkansas, they got 15 pounds to lose. But you know, you may be in some place like Boulder, Colorado or something where everybody's trim and fit and they lose 15 pounds, they're, they're gone. It is teratogenic and embryotoxic. So again, there's another parallel to Accutane or, or Isotretinoin where um, you, know, you can't give it to patients who could get pregnant and uh, not not use some precautions. Also, again, it is costly, it's expensive. You probably won't be using it in very many patients. Uh, you know, in, in my career, I've used it in like 14 patients, which I'm probably one of the highest users in my area. Uh, again, basal cell neva syndrome, not an indication. That's a tragedy for those people, but sometimes you can get them on for other reasons, and you can't stay on the drug forever. It's just another hammer, another tool in our box uh, that you can use when you're treating non-melanoma skin cancer. Okay, again, I'll go back to, we have so many tools, we have so many things medical, so many things surgical. It's what makes dermatologists and dermatology PAs better. We don't just do one thing all the time. We can tailor the treatment to the patient. And I do think it all comes back to the patient. The goal that you should be looking at when you're treating non-melanoma skin cancer is you wanna find the best treatment for that individual patient. That should be your goal. Okay, and I think that's, that's all I have, but I'll stick around for questions. Um, I appreciate your attention, and like I said, I'm honored to be here. Um, when you were discussing the non-responders to Omeclomod, how many applications would you wait until doing the occlusion? Usually, it depends. You know, what happens with Omeclomod is the first time you use it, it takes 10 to 14 days to get going. And so I wouldn't do anything before 10 to 14 days. Usually, usually what I do is I set up a two-week appointment 
But a lot of times I'll have them call me at 10 days, they're not getting anything, there's nothing happening. A lot of times that's when I say, hey, for the next five days, use it twice a day, then come see me. If at 14 days they're getting nothing, then I'm going with the tegaderm occlusion. Thank you. Other questions? Yes. You mentioned several off-label use of variety of medications. Yes, how do I'm you bad get, about that. Yes. How do you get coverage? How do you get coverage? Enable the patient to have it. You know, for, for some things, um, you know, just like for a Miquimod, I don't think they ever really ask. You know, it's not like they, you don't get that many insurance companies that go, oh, you're using this for AKs or whatever. Or a lot of times, say they have a basal cell on their forehead, gosh, there are some AKs in that area. Okay, I can say there's AKs there, let's move on. So I don't really have that much of a problem though. Usually when I write the prescription, I don't get many back that say, are you using this for AKs? Are you using this for general warts? What are you doing? So for those kind of products, generally it's just the expense, can they get it? And some patients can afford a Miquimod and others can't. And of course we don't get samples since it's generic. Um, so I don't really have that much problem. I think with things like, um, you know, the hedgehog inhibitor, it's a little bit different because it's a very high-priced product. But you have to basically show that patients are, you know, they meet certain criteria that they, it, you consider it locally advanced. Now I tell people, like some of my friends, if they, you know, if they have a little small cancer like this, it's locally advanced to them because they're just not surgical types. But for me, locally advanced might be totally different than maybe you. Uh, but you do have to check off that it's locally advanced, but it's such a subjective thing that generally if you think the patient needs it, I don't think it's so much of a problem. I tend to do a lot of things for my patients that, um, you know, I'm sure someday they'll throw me in jail because I'm a big patient advocate. If it's good for the patient, you know, uh, I've been one of those people that, I'm sorry, sometimes my patients can't afford seriatine and they need it because they have eruptive keratoic anthomas and they'd really like to use it, but it's $17 a pill in the United States and it's $2 a pill in Canada. And I can tell you the Canadian stuff works fine because when I give them the script and give them the Canadian pharmacy, they bring it back, we put them on, and it works. So sometimes that's all you can do. I don't know if they'll, like I said, they might throw me in jail someday or whatever, but I tend to be a patient advocate. I just try and do what, what I can for the patient. I haven't had too many problems getting some of the things approved. Um, like if I write for a tube of 5-FU, they usually don't send it back and go, gee, are you going to use this for AKs or for a squamous site too? Um, now, I think with PDT, there have been some problems because um, I think that people in Florida tried to use PDT. I guess it's only approved on the you know, trunk and extremities or something or whatever. Uh, it's, but they, they used it in different parts of the body in the same day. And Medicare picked up on it, and they called them out on it. And I think if that happens to you and Medicare says, you know, PDT is really not approved for this skin cancer that you did, then uh, you, you shouldn't do that. But, um, but on the other hand, you know, for, for some reason, like I said, I'm a big patient advocate. Uh, I think that, that again, Medicare, if they, find, if they find something that you're doing they don't like, they're going to give you a warning. But once you get that warning, you better stop doing it. So if you're using PDT inappropriate on a ton of patients, that's probably not so good. Most of the time, I don't think people use that as their first choice. It's going to be the patient with basal cell nevus syndrome. And generally, if you wrote a long letter, you know, you could justify, I think most people would say, yeah, you're going to justify that use. Eventually, with Medicare, you get to an administrative law judge on the third appeal, and they would go through it with you. 
and most of those judges I've seen are very patient protective. Oh, this is best for the beneficiary. You're an expert in this area. You have expertise. They're going to allow that. Yes. And a couple of things I was hoping you could touch on briefly. First sure. of all, going back to the first part of your lecture, um, the histologic differences between an infiltrative versus an invasive skin cancer and how that guides your care. And then also, could you briefly uh, share your opinion on brachytherapy? Okay. Yeah, so the, the, first one is, <clears throat> the first one is invasive cancer versus infiltrative cancer. The infiltrative name is a poor name. It's unfortunate that they named it infiltrative because you think of infiltrative as like, hey, that's invasive. Not necessarily. When it's invasive, it just means that it's in the dermis, maybe invading. Infiltrative is a specific histology. It's four to five cell layers thick. They're little spiky cells. And they've been shown in studies that infiltrative histologies are much more aggressive. So, um, so when you see infiltrative histology, it obviously is one of those high-risk histologies that you're probably not going to scrape that off. You're going to probably have to cut that out or do something fairly aggressive with it. It just gives you a little bit more idea that it's, more, it's a little bit more mean. But it's a specific histology that they unfortunately just named infiltrative. I don't know why they did that. The second is on brachytherapy. And I will tell you that I don't have that much experience with brachytherapy, even though I'm on the AD committee that tried to write the, the, the uh, guidelines for it or whatever. I think that it's a type of radiation therapy. It's in between the real superficial and the real heavy duty radiation therapy. I don't have much experience with it. I think that, um, uh, I think that what you'll see over the next few years is that we'll get more studies We'll probably get more training. Dermatologists will be more trained on brachytherapy or on superficial radiation. I'm not real quick to judge. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm open-minded to it because I think that it could be useful for patients. On the other hand, there's obviously plenty of use for, for uh, you know, it's, it's something that could be abused. So there's probably always a second side to the story, but I think it's just not told yet. So I don't know, maybe you have ex more experience with brachytherapy than I do? Yeah, because you have to have a radiation oncologist in some states do it. Is that the idea? Yeah. yeah. Have you had good results? We've had excellent results of it, but it's very expensive. Yeah. I think that it's, uh, and, and believe it or not, it's less expensive than the heavy-duty radiation. So yeah, it can be expensive, and then the superficial is less expensive, but Unfortunately, the superficial may not take care of a lot of the tumors that, that you might want to take care of, like with the brachytherapy. I think it'll be something that's evolving that we'll hear more about as time goes on. Maybe a good suggestion for someone to come talk about radiation at your next meeting just to give you the, give you, the uh, you know, what's happening. Yes? We have time for one more question. Thank you. Um, my question was regarding verrucous uh, carcinoma. Yes. Would you suspect it if, would you expect miquimod to have an effect on that, or would you be more suspicious of it if there was no effect? Yeah, the question was about verrucous carcinoma and would a miquimod, uh, you know, would a miquimod take care of that? You know, I believe in divine intervention. <laughs> it's, it's not impossible for anything to work. And, but on the other hand, I would say that that most of the time when you have verrucous carcinoma, it's not going to, to be cured with, um, with amiquimod. There are exceptions. I have patients with periungal squamous cell. It's not really verrucous carcinoma, 
but I've had a couple of patients who are just very hesitant to getting their finger lopped off and have used a Miquimod under my supervision under occlusion and just gotten horrible reactions and done extremely well. But most of the time it's more squamous side to or minimally invasive. Once you get Rucus carcinoma, I just don't think a Miquimod's gonna take care of that. If you had a patient you treated with a Miquimod that got better, maybe it wasn't Rucus carcinoma. I'm not, I just, I would think it's one of those divine intervention moments. Like, wow, God came down and healed this person. <laughs> and that does happen, and, and I depend on that in my practice a lot. But, um, and, and you, after a while, you know something's different. But I would say, yeah, Mequimod for Rucus carcinoma, not likely to, uh, not likely to affect a cure. You might, you're probably not gonna do any harm with it though either. It's just don't do radiation. Okay, that's it. Thank you again.